Our scripture reading today is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, um, and you find that on page 1165 of your Pew Bible. That's Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, page 1165. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, uh, Leslie, for reading our passage, and uh, to Ruth for stepping in there. I think announcing a hymn and not having a pianist is like a minister nightmare, that that's uh, what will happen next. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for covering for me there. Just a brief reminder to put this text in context. Paul is concluding a major section of this letter of Philippians, uh, a section of the letter that's encouraging the church in Philippi to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, the life of citizens, not of Philippi, not of Rome, but of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And in large part, Paul says, this way of living is built on or has to do with cultivating a certain sort of mindset a mindset rooted in Christ's own pattern of life. And so Paul shows us in the middle of this section, which we looked at for three weeks, what that looks like by looking at Christ's incarnation, humble obedience, death, and exaltation. And he says this is the kind of mindset we need to cultivate, humble service, self-giving. Now Paul continues spelling out the implications for us. Notice our If you have confessed Jesus Christ is Lord that Jesus is the Messiah, the covenant God of Israel, come to us in the flesh for our salvation. If you've confessed that, then this is how you should live. Throughout this passage, Paul balances instructions with assurances. Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. Do all things, for you are God's children. Shine in the world, for you are lights. Hold fast, for you have the word of life. It balances instruction, command, and reassurance. And so in our outline, uh, if a bit clunkily, I've tried to summarize what Paul says in these three sentences in a way that reflects that balance. So our outline this morning is God is at work in you, so work out your salvation. You are God's children, so shine. You bring joy, so rejoice. God is at work in you, so work out your salvation. You are God's children, so shine. You bring joy, so rejoice. The first sentence, uh, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, God is at work in you, so work out your salvation. God is at work in you, so work out your salvation. 
He begins by rooting this command in the, uh, uh, the Philippian church's past behavior. As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Continue obeying. The last passage I had in the back of my head, uh, the teachers I knew, because this is the kind of language teachers use, right? They say, students, uh, I may be out of class tomorrow and you might have a substitute, but I want you to obey with the substitute teacher just like you do when I'm here. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, just as when I'm with you, now that I'm absent in prison, continue to obey. But keep in mind, Paul has already told the Philippians, it may well be that his imprisonment leads to his ultimate death, to being put to death. And so Paul, he, he hopes that he will be released, and yet he recognizes this might be the last words that he writes to this church in Philippi. So what's he saying? He's saying, I've seen you, your course up till now, it's been obedient, continue on that path. And then there's this central command, with fear and trembling, work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you. There's a, there's a sort of Christian formula here that Paul gives us with two sides. First, Paul doesn't say work for your salvation, but work out your own salvation. His point is not that we work to procure salvation, but we practice our salvation. Remember, Paul writes this letter to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who are saints, who have been set apart, who have been saved through Christ's work. So what Paul is talking about here is how do those who are saved live out the saved life in the world? He's not talking about how do you find salvation. Uh, when I was 11 or 12 on New Year's Eve, I was at a friend's house for a party and I fell off a sort of skateboard balance board thing and fractured both bones in my left forearm. And after I got the cast off, I had to do physical therapy to regain the motion in my arm and my uh, muscle strength. And physical therapy was do all, one of the things I remember uh, the worst was do all the dishes hand wash with your left hand that you broke and then get all the water from one compartment of the sink to the other using the sponge and squeeze it out. Uh, and I guess that's when I learned to do hand wash well. But the point that I'm getting at here is the break was already repaired. The doctor set my arm. The, uh, he put it in a cast, the bones had reunited, but I still had to work out my arm on the basis of that. That's Paul's sense here. Repair has been made. Christ has set right our relationship with God. In Christ, we're united to God. It's like the bone has grown back together. But now we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It follows the pattern uh, of the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt, but he doesn't just set them free and say, do whatever you want now, go wild. He brings them to Mount Sinai and he says, here's how you serve me. You're delivered from bondage. And God says, here is true freedom, serving me in this way. When we encounter the living God, we respond with fear and trembling, awe and reverence, and continued obedience to Christ. It's the Exodus pattern. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But the second part of the formula, Paul says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, this is linked up to the instruction to work out your salvation. Why should you work out your salvation? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason we work out our salvation, the reason we have hope that we can succeed is because God is at work in us at working us in two levels, both that we would will 
and we would work to his good pleasure. Our wills, our desires, our affections, our choices, our inner life needs to be renewed so that we can serve God aright. But then God also works in us to work. He works in us. To what end? Paul says, for his good pleasure, because it pleases him, because he wants to. Here's the divine mystery of God's love and choice. In Deuteronomy, Moses reflects on the same mystery. He says, the Lord set his love on you and chose you because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord loves you because he loves you. And when you get down to it, when you're asked, why do you love your spouse? Why do you love your parents, your children? You don't really, I mean, you can say they're a great cook, but if that's really the bottom line of my marriage is my wife's a great cook, that's not, that's not the heart of it, is it? That's not the love. And in the same way, it's like God's own love is a mystery. He loves his people because he loves them. He fell in love with his people, and so he saves them, and he works in them for his own good pleasure. Well, in the Christian formula, these two things have to be held together. You don't get one without the other. God works in you, and you must work out your own salvation. Uh, John Duncan, a 19th century Scottish uh, 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 professor, said that God works half, and man does half, that God works all, and man does all is true. That God works half, and man does the other half is false. That God works all, and man does all is truth. It's both true that God does it all, we do it all. And how do we work that out? It's a paradox. Uh, as the 18th century minister Charles Simeon would put it, it's the truth in both extremes. It's fully true that we have to work out the implications of our own salvation. It's fully true that God is constantly at work in our lives. Well, it's, it, it, it's difficult to get our head around because it's a paradox. And so we can't spell out exactly how these fit together, but we know that they are both true. And so we affirm them both. But the formula is even more difficult for us because we have modern assumptions about human nature that don't fit Paul's own view of things or the biblical view of things. We assume a modern person is an autonomous, discrete individual who enters into a relationship with other autonomous, discrete individuals only insofar as they desire and only for as long as they want. Uh, 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 your rights end where my nose begins. That's kind of our view of people, right? Uh, my skin is And then along with these modern assumptions, we reduce God down to our level in our imaginations. We think of him as just another person in the world. And so if God's acting, it's a bit like the cue ball in a pool game that he might knock into another ball that knocks into another ball. But that's kind of what God's acting is like. But that's clearly not Paul's picture here. Paul has a totally different assumption about what human nature is like and so what God's relationship to human nature is like. And we see that in the previous paragraph that we already spent three weeks on, and so I'm sorry to go back there, but it's such a marvelous paragraph. Uh, uh, Paul's story about Christ's incarnation. Christ in, in very nature is God, but he takes to himself a human nature. At the incarnation, the Son of God becomes really, truly, fully human. And it, it doesn't in any way distort or undo human nature. He's still really, fully, truly human, even as he's the Son of God. That means God created people you and I, to be open to him. God can work in us, through us. He can even take our nature on himself without violating its integrity. Humans are made to be open to God. And so then Paul sees no conflict between saying, work, for it is God who is at work in us. We actually become more truly ourselves. We become more who we were meant to be. We become more truly, fully human as God works more and more within us. 
Well, how does this work out practically? We're called to live in dependent action or active dependence. It's a blend of rest and activity, not one after the other, although we do uh, have a rhythm of rest as well, but rest and activity at the same time. We can't pull these two parts of the formula apart, work, God's working. We've got to hold them together or else we fall into the pitfall of activism or passivity. Activism is when we say, I've got to do better. I've got to pray more. I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to quit cussing. I've got to do whatever this is. I've got to do it. That's activism. And it will crush you because you can't do it. On the other hand, it's just pure passivity. God's at work, so I'm just going to let go and let God. There's nothing else to it. Well, that's not what Paul says either. We've got to hold the two together. Uh, when I was growing up, sometimes we would sing this little chorus, uh, Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. Uh, it may not be the most profound poetry, but Christian prayer. We recognize that God is at work in us, and we need him to change our hearts. And so we pray, God, change my heart, may I be more like you. But if we pray that, and then we just sit back and don't do anything, and we continue to entertain bitter attitudes and lustful thoughts and angry patterns, we're not applying the formula that Paul gives us. Paul says, work yourself for God's at work in you. Ask God to work in us, and then work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Take responsibility for your sanctification, for your inner life. Then in verses 14 through 16, the second sentence, Paul shifts from focusing on our individual responsibility uh, to how working out our salvation impacts others around us. And so this brings us to a second reassurance and a second instruction. You are God's children, so shine. You are God's children, so shine. Uh, verses 14 through 16, it's all one long complex sentence, but let's try and work through it in order here. Paul says, do all things, and then he doesn't tell us what to do, but how to do it, what our attitude should be. Do all things so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Again, Paul's not saying do all things so that you can become children of God. It's addressed to saints in Christ Jesus, saying if you are a Christian, you've been set apart in Christ for God's service. Therefore, as children of God, live appropriately in the world. Uh, it's a bit like we might imagine a king or queen saying to their children, you are royals, therefore behave accordingly. Live in a way that's appropriate to your status. That's what Paul's saying here. You are children by nature if you are in Christ. Live in the appropriate manner. But then he focuses not on what to do, but how to do it. Because our attitudes matter as well as our actions. And here Paul gives us a command that uh, we might glance over, uh, read quickly, because it seems a little bit easy. And yet when we really stop to think about it, it's a difficult command. Kids putting together their toys at midnight on Christmas Eve. You, know, all, you, you do all that without grumbling or disputing. Let me know and I will happily buy you a coffee. Okay? If we can do it even three weeks. And yet Paul's saying this is our ongoing pattern of behavior. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is it's external. It's vocal. It's when we're muttering under our breath, when we complain, when we make unbalanced criticisms, or we're impatient, or we're grudging and unwilling to be helpful. 
I was working on this when someone texted me asking if I could help them move some furniture. And I thought, uh, OK, I, if I'm going to say this on Sunday morning, I've got to go and do, practice what I preach here, that uh, uh, doing things willingly. Uh, disputing, on the other hand, it, it, it's maybe not the best English translation, but I don't have a better word. The, the Greek word really seems to refer to our internal attitude, uh, that we have this inner argument going. Okay. So we go along with whatever we're doing, and yet all along we're thinking of all the ways we could do it better, all the reasons why this is a stupid idea, all the reasons why they should put me in charge of this rather than letting other people. That kind of inner argument, um, and maybe I'm the only one who has that sort of inner argument, but if not, that's what Paul's talking about here. Do nothing or do all things without grumbling, disputing. Get rid of both the external and the internal. Then you may be blameless and innocent. Again, his words are external, internal. The external blameless. No one can fault you. There's nothing to blame you for. Uh, from the outside, it looks good. You're doing all things without complaining. But then innocent means you know your own heart. You know your own mind. And really, you could be having this sort of disputing argument running in your head the whole time, and no one else would even know. Maybe you have a good smile on your face. Everybody thinks they're such a cheerful helper. And yet the reality is something different. Well, what Paul's saying here is be innocent. You know your inner life. Make sure you're not doing that sort of thing. Again, Paul's not saying be perfect yourselves. He's not saying you've got to bat a thousand. Rather, he's saying work out your salvation. This is one for you. and Work it out, both to will, to work external for his good pleasure. But then Paul, in that way, we will have a public witness. Paul's emphasis, uh, what he's saying here is not then you will be children of God. You're not now, but then you will be. Christians already have that status in Christ. Rather, what he's saying is you will visibly be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul follows Jesus' own vision for the church. Do you remember in John 17, Jesus prays for the church, and what does he pray? That they, uh, he, sa he says, to, praying to his Father, he says, they are not of the world, that is, the church, Christians are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, but I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, Christians are not of the world, but they're sent into the world. So Paul, our generation is crooked and twisted. It doesn't mean it's as depraved as it could be. It doesn't mean it's And so that leads to friction and difficulty for Christians. But Paul doesn't say withdraw into a monastery that's away from the crooked and twisted generation. No, he says live as God's children in the midst of of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Christians should not be surprised to find the surrounding world twisted or crooked. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised to find that the world gets things partially right, but also partially wrong. We shouldn't spend our time hand-wringing about the dark aspects of our society. Uh, both Jesus and Paul warn us, our society is going to have darkness in it. It's crooked and twisted. We shouldn't expect anything different. Rather, we are called to shine as lights in the world. We are called to service to the world, to accurately represent God through our character, through our worship, to be spots of brightness, to reflect God's light in the midst of darkness. Uh, Christians are called to be like nightlights in the middle of the world. Uh, we're never going to light up the whole room but there's a bit of light in the darkness, enough at least to navigate by. Uh, going back to 2, 1 through 4 then, Christians' corporate attitude, we as a church, as Wiser Lake Chapel, 
should act in your individual attitude. Uh, humility we should count others, even outside our church, more significant than ourselves. To our own others. We should care for our world, even as it is recognizing it's a twisted and crooked or, or crooked and twisted generation. Christians perform this role of light in the midst of darkness by holding on to or holding the word of life. Uh, Paul uses a word here that's ambiguous. Uh, it, the verb can either mean hold fast, hold tight, cling to, or it can mean hold out, hold forth, offer uh, uh, the verbs used to present food to someone. Uh, you're holding a tray of food and offering it to others. And I think he's intentionally using a word that captures both senses because both are true. Uh, like a rock climber, we've got to hold on to the word of life. We've got to uh, hold on for dear life, you know, grip onto it. And yet at the same time, it's not just holding on in a defensive posture, but it's holding out. It's presenting the word of life to the surrounding world. We hold the word of life not hidden, but as an open invitation to others. Living should be a centered fullness of life in a way of others. Even if they don't understand why, even if they respect our witness that are uh, uh, objectionable, nevertheless, there should be something about the character of our humble, self-giving life that is attractive. If it's not putting the point too boldly, Paul's vision is that each Christian should be like a crucifix. Uh, Protestants typically don't put up a crucifix with Christ on the cross uh, in their homes, and yet that's what our lives are meant to be, cruciform, to, to, to be a picture of Christ's own self-giving love in the way we treat others. In Christ you are God's children, so shine. Paul says, then I will be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do you see Paul's goal? He doesn't say, you know, if I grow the biggest church in Philippi, then I'm going to be proud. Or if I have the biggest budget in my ministry, then I'm going to be proud. Or any of those sorts of things that churches often look at. No, what does he look for? It's not bringing things to himself, but sending outward. If he has disciples in the church of Philippi who hold the word of life out to others, disciples who make disciples, if it's, if it's being diffused throughout the world, that's when he will celebrate. That's when he will be proud. Again, Paul is just saying what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Be disciples who make disciples. Offer what you have. This note of pride in the Philippians' uh, faithful witness leads Paul to a third thought. You bring joy, so rejoice. You bring joy, so rejoice. In verses 17 and 18, Paul gives us a picture of reciprocal joy. He says, I am glad, or literally it's the same word joy. I'm joyful and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be joyful and rejoice with me. I have joy and, and joy in you, and so I want you to have joy and joy in me. To understand this reciprocal mutual joy, we need to adopt Paul's own mindset in verse 17. Remember, that's what he's talking about in Philippians. It's the sort of mind we should have, the mind of Christ. And Paul offers us a little picture of a mindset change we need to make in the first part of verse 17. The Philippians, uh, he says, your faithful obedience, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, living faithfully as children of God in the midst of a sacrificial offering, or sacrifice worship to God. That's what our faithful obedience is to God. Uh, but then Paul says his ministry is like being poured out as a drink offering upon the Philippians' sacrificial offering of faith. Uh, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, a drink offering oftentimes or sometimes accompanied a, 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 an offering, a meat offering on the altar. So as the meat was being burned, some wine would be poured out as a drink offering. And Paul's saying that's what his own ministry is like. It's like a drink offering that's being poured out to accompany 
the ministry or offering or sacrifice of the Philippian church. Now, if we can pick up that imagery for a second, being poured out, we often talk about being drained. Do you guys use this language? I feel drained at the end of the day, uh, used up. We say we're drained by dealing with a needy person. I feel drained ministering in a difficult situation. I feel drained by what's expected of me. My energy has been expected, uh, expended. There's nothing left. But Paul frames the same experience in, the, in, in a little bit different way. He's ministering to the Philippians from jail. It's not a pleasant experience. He's facing potential execution, potential death for his witness. And yet he doesn't say, I, I feel drained. I have nothing left to give. He says, I'm being poured out. This is the language you use when God, when you recognize God is at work in you. Poured out, someone else is doing the action. God is pouring you out, working through you, pouring his love out into others. And so when he says in that way, this is a difficult situation, and yet he's saying, I'm being poured out. God's working through me. God's working in me to help you. And so I rejoice, both that God is using me and that what God is doing in you. This isn't manufactured fake joy. Okay, you can go down to Target this afternoon and I'm sure buy a million knick-knack plastic things that say joy on them. That's not what Paul's saying here. This is real joy. And yet, it's not claiming that suffering is actually good or like I'm having a fun time here being uh, imprisoned and possibly facing death. It's not denying the reality of suffering, but it's saying in the midst of suffering, even facing possible execution, I have joy because God is pouring me out. He's using me for his glory, that what I do, my ministry, your witness, it's all worship to God. And do you see that? That's really the fundamental image here. We don't witness because it's some kind of numbers game that we want our church to be a larger number or something like that. We witness by our lives because that's how we worship God. We bear testimony, we bear witness to his work. That's the sort of joy that Paul is talking about. Joy that comes from a relationship with Christ. Joy knowing that Christ gave himself for you. Joy with one another in Christ, rejoicing in each other. And that joy is on an unshakable foundation, Christ himself. You bring joy, so rejoice. He says earlier, God is working in you and through you because it's his good pleasure. God himself rejoices in you to work through you. And so rejoice. I wonder, is this your attitude? Do you rejoice in fellow Christians? relationship with Christ, do you rejoice that you are being poured out, that you are being used for God's glory? Friends, God is at work in you if you are in Christ. So work out your salvation. If your faith is in Christ, when you get up tomorrow morning to shave or put on your makeup or, you know, if you're like me, to just do this on the way out of the bathroom, that kind of a thing, look in the mirror and say, God is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. That is a true statement if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ and you say, you know what, I would love for God to rejoice in me and be at work in me, this is not like a closed off thing. That It's an open invitation that anyone could be open to God working in them. It's simply saying, Christ Jesus is Lord. Come and work in me, God. Change my heart. Make it more like you. It's an open invitation. But friends, I want this truth to get home to you. God is at work in you. God rejoices in you, I rejoice in you, so rejoice, have joy. You're God's children, so shine, reflect his glory. Let us pray together.
Lord, thank you that you are at work in the midst of your people, that you are at work in our lives. It's slow work. At times, it's painful. At times, we're impatient, and we want it to hurry up and to be perfect, and yet that's not our lot in this life. That's only in the life to come. And so let us patiently work out our salvation with fear and trembling, in awe before you, knowing that you are at work within us. Lord, there's some here today who you're not yet at work in, at least in the way that is described here. And so I ask by your Holy Spirit, be at work in their hearts. Let them respond to this open invitation. Let them say, even this Sunday morning, Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we do live in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. We look around and we see ways of living and pressure to live in a way that doesn't line up with your word. Let us hold fast to the word of life. Let us not be swayed by that pressure. And yet let us, in the midst of this crooked generation, live among those who are rights. Lord, you have given us much reason for joy. And so let us rejoice this Advent season, taking joy in each other, taking joy in the work that you are doing. Amen.